Hey there, everyone, and welcome to the History of Health. I'm your host, Connor Sexton, and this week we're beginning our series of episodes on Dr. Jon Snow and cholera in London. It's a fascinating story that blends history, science, and politics. It's a story about innovation being resisted by the status quo, but eventually triumphing. And it's a story that tells us a little bit about who we are and how we came to be. Before we get started, I need to remind everyone to subscribe to the History of Health and leave a nice review if you like what I do here. It really helps get that algorithm going and helps grow the podcast. If you really like what I do here, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash history of health. This is a listener supported podcast. I'm a totally independent operation here. So you Patreon supporters are my only boss. It costs less than a cup of coffee a month and it really goes far. So if you get a kick out of the show, head over to patreon.com backslash history of health. And a big thank you to everyone who's already signed up. And follow me on the socials. My Twitter is at healthhistory underscore, and my Facebook is history of health. Finally, a monumental thank you to my parents, the rest of my family, my brothers, my sister, and all of my friends and teachers along the way for the support and guidance that you've given me. I love you all. Now, without any further ado, let's begin our story. This story is brought to you by walking. Did you know walking regularly can improve your mood, decrease your risk of heart attack, and help you sleep better? It's an amazingly powerful exercise. Walking. It's fun. Now this story is about a disease called cholera and how it ravaged London in the 1850s. But to really understand cholera, we have to go beyond the medical or the scientific and explore a bit of the history and politics connected with it. We have to set the context. The year is 1854. Queen Victoria is 17 years into her eventual 63-year reign. Britain sits atop the world as the wealthiest and most powerful empire. She has gained much from her colonial exploits, especially from that jewel of the empire, India. By combining cheap cotton grown by American slaves with the destruction of India's textile industry, she paved the way for her own textiles to dominate the world market. Indentured Indian laborers were sent across the globe to do grueling work on plantations or railways. She took precious gems and cultural artifacts thousands of years old, some of which remain in Britain to this day. It remains difficult to even calculate how much in cold hard currency was taken looted, taxed, or plainly pillaged. The cataclysmic effect Britain has had on the Indian subcontinent reverberates to this day. And part of that legacy is one of the deadliest diseases we have ever discovered. A disease known at the time as Asiatic Cholera, or the Blue Death. While its exact origin is unknown, cholera has been common in certain parts of India for centuries. It has killed tens of millions of people throughout history. It's likely that cholera outbreaks have occurred in India since the 4th or 5th century BCE. The first confirmed cholera pandemic emerged out of the Ganges Delta in 1817 and was thought to be a new disease by the medical practitioners in the area who had not encountered it before. It quickly spread in all directions to China and the Philippines, 
as well as to Europe through Iran and Turkey. The British public was fascinated and terrified by this new disease. This new terror was dubbed the Blue Death because it caused the body to become so dehydrated that the victim would stop breathing and their skin would take on a frightful blue tinge. Since the British first came in contact with cholera, there has been wave after wave of epidemic throughout Europe and Western Asia. The third such epidemic saw cholera reach London in 1854, where it ripped through the city like an angel of death, killing rich and poor, old and young alike. People were dying within hours, not days of contracting the disease. Entire families were wiped out, or possibly worse, one survivor would remain. England hadn't seen death on this scale on its home soil since the bubonic plague. The government and the medical establishment were impotent in the face of such an unknown scourge. They attempted to cope with this new threat, but their attempts often resulted in even more death. Thousands fled the city, not knowing what else to do. Fortunately, someone had an idea. And through his dogged pursuit of this idea, he would find the cause and means of prevention of cholera, bring the world closer to the germ theory of disease, and become the father of epidemiology. This was Dr. John Snow. Snow was described by a contemporary as a greater benefactor to the human race as has appeared in the present century, which is, I think, about the highest praise an Englishman of Snow's time could muster. This was Victorian England, after all. He was also sarcastically accused of residing in a sewer and was viewed by some of the most prominent physicians of the time as a traitor to empirical medicine. But he proved his haters wrong and was instrumental in moving us toward the germ theory of disease while becoming one of the founders of both modern epidemiology and anesthesiology. He was a remarkable individual who lived an austere life. He used his brilliant mind and his absolutely ludicrous work ethic to solve practical problems for society, and he always shared his breakthroughs, never seeking to monopolize a good idea. He helped everyone, administering anesthesia to the queen during two births and offering services free of charge to people who couldn't afford treatment. We owe a great debt of gratitude to people like him for solving problems so that we don't have to. When people say they're standing on the shoulders of giants, he's one of the ones they're talking about. Our story mainly takes place in London in the 1850s, but to tell you about that, I have to tell you more about Jon Snow. Who was he? Where did he come from? What prepared him to make one of the greatest discoveries of all time? To answer those questions, we begin in York, 1813. On the 15th of March, John became the first of nine children born to William and Francis. His dad was a laborer in a coal yard, and then a carman, which is a driver of a horse-drawn vehicle for transporting goods. I think of it like the modern equivalent of a truck driver. And then later in life, his dad became a farmer, while his mom gave birth to nine children in 15 years. It's remarkable. The young family lived on a narrow street in York, occupied by working-class folks like themselves. Tanners, sail and flag makers, weavers, bakers, and small manufacturers. It's not the kind of childhood one might expect for a future scientific luminary, but his upbringing surrounded by people of all walks of life 
who was indispensable to the way his theory of disease developed. John was recognized for his intelligence from a young age. He was enthusiastic as well as gifted. So his mother used a small inheritance to send him to a private school where he excelled. Then, in 1827, at 14, yes, at 14 years old, he left home to start a medical apprenticeship in Newcastle with a surgeon named Mr. William Hardcastle. Snow didn't leave a first-hand account of his life as an apprentice, but it is thought that Hardcastle was a progressive-thinking boss. That means, instead of just using the young boy for his labor, he gave John access to medical books, made certain he was exposed to a variety of clinical complaints, and allowed him time to receive formal medical training when possible. Three years into his apprenticeship, at 17, he read an essay called The Return to Nature, A Defense of the Vegetable Regimen. This essay convinced him to convert to a vegetarian diet and that pure water and a healthy digestive system were essential to a person's overall well-being. It's hard to overstate the impact this essay had on Snow, and through him, on world history. The essay planted the seeds, through its emphasis on water and the digestive system, for his ultimate theory of cholera transmission. Without this essay, it's difficult to imagine how Jon Snow makes the breakthroughs that he makes. Another central figure in Snow's intellectual rise was his mother's technically half-brother, Charles Empson. I say technically because they have the same parents. It's just that Frances, John's mom, was born before their parents were officially married. So she kept her mother's name, and Charles, who was born after the marriage, took his father's name. Anyway, Uncle Charles had traveled to Columbia with the civil engineer Robert Stevenson, who later became famous for his work on railroads. Upon returning, both Charles and Robert set up in Newcastle, Charles set up shop as a dealer of antiques, old books, and paintings just a few blocks from where Snow was staying with the Hardcastle family. Charles and Hardcastle were actually friends, and while there's no direct evidence of this, leading all the sources to say that it's likely that Charles set up the apprenticeship for Snow, but come on, the two men were friends, and his sister's son just happens to apprentice with Hardcastle? I'm going to go out on a tiny limb here and say that Charles for sure brought Snow and Hardcastle together. Uncle Charles also actively promoted young artists in town, offered tuition-free drawing lessons to poor students and scholarships to others. John benefited enormously from his uncle's social connections. Charles's shop became a meeting place for the local literati, naturalists, gentry, professionals, and commercial types. I imagine John was much like a happy sponge in this environment, soaking up all the knowledge and wisdom he could. Two years after his uncle's arrival in Newcastle, in 1832, cholera reached England. It had remained endemic in India since its first major outbreak in 1817. According to Britain's General Board of Health, between 1825 and 1844, Cholera killed nearly one-eighth of all European soldiers and almost one-fifth of all native soldiers every year. The second cholera pandemic reached Sunderland in October 1831, where it was carried by passengers on a ship from the Baltic. By 1832, it had reached a coal mining village near where Jon Snow was living. He was sent in place of his mentor, who was acting as medical officer in Newcastle. This was John's first encounter with cholera, but... 
What the heck is cholera anyway? Cholera is a fast-acting bacterial infection that infects a person's small intestine and causes them to release water at a prodigious rate. In the 1830s, it was the terror of the modern world. These days, it has been all but defeated in industrialized nations, while it still affects many countries where people don't have access to clean water. There was an outbreak in Haiti after the devastating earthquake in 2011, and it remains a problem on the island. Zambia, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia have all reported outbreaks this year, and it continues to affect India, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Pakistan. These days, it's a disease of poverty. In 1832, it was a disease that even rich people had to worry about. In England at the time, except for people with military or administrative service in India, and those who had recently traveled to Eastern Europe, no English medical practitioner had seen a case of cholera until 1831. This was their COVID-19, and he was on the front lines at just 19 years old. And cholera must have been all the more terrifying because nobody knew how the disease spread. The bravery of medical people then and now is so admirable. Caring for patients when they have a disease that they don't understand and don't know if they might contract it through giving care, it's amazing. Anyway, he attended many patients and observed their living and working conditions. Even at this point, an idea was already forming in his mind that these conditions may have an effect on spreading the disease. Snow left Newcastle in 1833 for Burnup Field, a village of about 100 homes, 10 miles to the southwest. There he became assistant to a rural apothecary named John Watson. The definition of apothecary is someone who dispenses and mixes drugs, like a modern pharmacist does. But from Snow's notes, we know that this one engaged in a variety of medical activities. You see, in England in the 1800s, there was a large gap between the number of elite physicians and the number of people who required medical care. So, apothecaries filled that void. Snow gained valuable experience during these years, attending a wide variety of illnesses and often having to endure rough horseback rides to reach his patients. A funny anecdote from the time is about John learning that you must never waste a good blister after just one use. All right. So they used to use these combinations of plaster and things like mustard powder or spices and apply it to people's skin so that a blister would form. The idea was that this would cause whatever was causing the problems to concentrate in that blister area. It's like they would tell patients, we're going to irritate the heck out of this area of your skin, which is going to make all the bad stuff pool in this one area. And then the doctor would cut the blister and analyze what would come out to determine if the process had been successful. All right, so during Snow's first day with this surgeon, he noticed that the place was a mess, and there was a bunch of these old used blisters in one of the drawers. So, being the industrious and fastidious chap that he was, he waited until his new mentor went out, and he tidied the place up, burning the old blisters. When the surgeon came back, he was pissed! and told Snow to never throw out a blister after just one use. They were good for at least six uses. Can you imagine a doctor coming to apply something to your skin that was just on someone else's boil or scab? Eesh. Anyway, this won't be the last time John is chastised for trying to make improvements. 
John left Burnham Field and the used blisters in 1834. Along with disagreements with his boss, he felt he had to, and I quote, work too hard for his money. He was now 21 and decided to go home to York for a visit. His family was doing quite well. They had moved to a nicer house on the same street, and they owned a couple of properties that they were renting out. His seven surviving siblings all still lived at home and ranged in age from seven to 19. That must have been one heck of a breakfast table. After a short stay, he traveled to a small market town 40 miles from York called Pateley Bridge to begin his next adventure. This new post was under Joseph Warburton, a licensed apothecary with an extensive practice in the town and surrounding rural parishes. Joseph and his son, Joe Jr., took charge of patients in town, while John Snow was responsible for patients in the rural parishes. As in Burnup Field, his duties included a lot of hard horseback riding to reach his patients and a fair amount of night work. He continued to gain experience in bedside medicine, setting fractures, performing minor surgery, and compounding his own prescriptions. Towards the end of his time in Patley Bridge, John gave up alcohol entirely, becoming what was known at the time as a teetotaler. These folks were more radical in their views than the aptly named moderationists, who thought a little bit was just enough when it came to alcohol as well as reform. In the summer of 1836, he returned to York for an extended visit with his family. Throughout the summer, he traveled to nearby towns and villages to give speeches and participate in public debates related to his newfound cause of temperance. He's only 23, but he's already been a medical apprentice for nine years at this point. One of the temperance speeches he gave has been recorded and is known as Snow's Teetotal Address. This speech serves as a wonderful insight into Snow's character, personality, and intellect. I won't quote the whole piece because that would be tedious, but I will read one longish excerpt because it kind of blew my mind. I quote, With all our progress in natural history and the physical sciences, we are far behind some of the civilized nations of antiquity in knowledge of the things most nearly connected with our health and well-being. And while a British laborer has more comforts and luxuries within his reach than the Roman emperors could boast, while he has ships on every sea, conveying clothing and food and intelligence for him from every clime and machinery performing for him the most delicate workmanship. He is ignorant of the means of applying these things to his advantage, and they often become his greatest curses. Jeez, how smart was this guy? He's 23. He hasn't even been to London yet, and he's diagnosing society like a pro. It's amazing. He goes on to argue that as much care, attention, and research should be paid to matters of human nutrition as are made to botany, biology, and astronomy. He uses as an example the debate that was going on at the time about whether alcohol, specifically ale, aids in work. It was and remains a common belief that beer helps people doing strenuous work. He, being a teetotaler, obviously argues against this, but also says there would be no dispute if it were only looked into with the same kind of energy that is dedicated to making discoveries about the moon and planets. The phrase, more things change, the more they stay the same, comes to mind. While I think about how we're readying ourselves for Mars, while basic nutrition remains out of reach for a billion of our fellows here on Earth. 
The teetotal address shows John to be both highly logical and sensitive to those who didn't share his views. It seemed plainly obvious to him, based on the evidence, that alcohol had an overall negative effect on society. But in reading the address, I didn't pick up any hint of judgment or callousness. He made his case without belittling his audience or his opponents. After spending the summer with his family and debating his way through the countryside, he walked to London to continue his education. Apparently, he walked from York to Liverpool, then throughout all of North and South Wales, stopped at Bath to visit Uncle Charles, and then proceeded on to London. These days, that's a YouTube travel show. He did it just as a matter of course. Ridiculous. Anyway, he arrived in London and started at the Hunterian School of Medicine in October 1836. London in 1836 was a city in transition. With a population of about 2 million, it was the largest city in the world. The first railway in the city's history had been finished earlier in the year, and growth seemed to be in the very air they breathed. Unfortunately, along with that growth, came some rather foul smells as well. London in the 1830s hadn't updated its public infrastructure in quite a long time. It had been over 200 years and it showed. There were artificial ponds of raw sewage and dung heaps the size of houses scattered throughout the city. Snow came to town and rented a room near Soho Square. He had only about 250 square feet of living space, but as a first-year medical student, he'd have spent all of his time either in the lecture hall or the dissecting room, so he only would have used the room to read or sleep. So yeah, 250 square feet, no problem. In the winter of 1836, he took a full course load at the Hunterian School. John was a true nerd and decided to retake several courses he had already taken in Newcastle. He had an early interest in obstetrics, which was an emerging specialty at the time. He took several courses from doctors pursuing the field, and he had attended many births alongside his first mentor, William Hardcastle. His interest in obstetrics, and as we'll see later, his interest especially in relieving the pain of the mother, I think maybe had something to do with seeing his mom give birth like eight times. This is me reading into the evidence, though I don't think it's all that great of a leap. During his first year in London, John developed a close friendship with Joshua Parsons, a fellow medical student. Parsons attests to John's voracious academic appetite. He states, quote, we usually overrated our fellows in the dissecting room and often worked far into the evening, end quote. The two became such fast friends, they ended up living together, both dedicating nearly every waking hour to study. Snow didn't keep a diary of this period, but we learned from his contemporaries who did that medical education at the time involved much more independent study than hands-on direction from instructors. Richer medical students could pay an instructor to give personal guidance, but scrappers like John and Parsons had to largely teach themselves, which they did with gusto, until Parsons left to set up a general practice in Somerset in 1837. For the next two years, John studied his face off and continued to gain an experience by shadowing the resident medical officers as they walked the wards of hospitals. In May of 1838, he became a member of the Royal College of Surgeons in London, and in October, he qualified as an apothecary. Along with his medical training, Snow conducted experiments on his own, 
investigating arsenic poisoning related to cadaver preparation, and from candles containing arsenic. In both cases, he utilized investigative techniques which he would employ in his later research into anesthesia and cholera. Scientific methods unleashed by the Enlightenment and stoked by the French Revolution were being implemented throughout Europe at this time, and especially in its leading cities like Paris and London. Snow was a beneficiary of this new perspective that viewed medicine as a science instead of an art practiced at the bedside. Adherents of this perspective encouraged their students to include anatomy, physiology, mathematics, and chemistry as corollary sciences to medicine. These scientific revolutionaries laid the foundations for so many of the breakthroughs made in the past 200 years, including the one we're focused on now, cholera transmission. Without Snow's background in chemical analysis, statistics, and even mapping, he would not have been able to make the connections necessary to prove his theory of cholera and save countless lives. John qualified as an apothecary in October 1838. I doubt he ever thought of leaving London after he had experienced the action. For a young man who had spent many of the years between 14 and 23 riding horses at night just trying to find his patients, he must have absolutely loved London. Now 25, and with his level of intellect and curiosity, I can only imagine the thrill and excitement of living in London at that time. And when we come back next week, we'll keep on imagining what it must have been like. We'll pick up with our young doctor and see what it was like to start a medical practice from nothing in one of London's most dynamic neighborhoods. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take care of each other. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.